It's not nice to be stuck in the dark, is it? Have you ever been in an unfamiliar place and let's say you wake up and it's all dark and you, you fumble around and you look for a light switch and isn't it the worst feeling when you finally find a light switch and you flick it and nothing happens? We don't like to be in the dark. You remember that, I think it was last year, that soccer team in Thailand was stuck inside that cave system and their oxygen was running out and their batteries on their torches was, was running out. Not a pleasant thing to be stuck in a dark place. What would you do if you were deep underground, lost in a whole labyrinth of dark caves and tunnels, and your flashlight was dead, and suddenly you saw in the distance a glimmer of light? What would you do? I think you'd go towards it, wouldn't you? We're attracted to the light. What if you heard a voice saying from the, from the area where the light is, follow me, I'll, I'll guide you out of here. I think you'd listen real quick, wouldn't you, children? This is a way out of the darkness, a way back into the daylight. If that light goes ahead of you, tunnel after tunnel and cavern after cavern, leading you slowly but surely out back into the world of life and light. Are you going to pay attention? Are you going to look carefully where it's going? If it goes to the left, are you are going to follow it? If it goes to the right, are you are going to follow it? Or are you just going to kind of wander around aimlessly, closing your eyes and not really paying much attention? What would you do? I think we would pay attention, right? Scripture often uses the theme of darkness and light to describe our spiritual state. Darkness represents where we are in our fallen nature, away from God and under the curse of our sin. And light, well, God is, is, is dwelling in unapproachable light. Light is to be with God. Light is to have life. The scripture says about the wicked that the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That's what it is like to live without the Lord Jesus, without the gospel. You just kind of stumble around, falling over things that you don't even know what they are and why they're there. But what does the scripture say about the life of the righteous? The proverb says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. It's a good thing to know the one who is called the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just gets better and better and better. Now Peter tells us in our text what this lamp is, what this light is, which brings us out of the darkness of sin and into the glorious light of the eternal kingdom of God. And he calls on us in this text, verse 19, to pay attention to that light. He calls on us to pay attention to the glorious, spirit-filled word of Christ. Christ. 
Now, you would think that it's a no-brainer. If you're in the darkness and you see some light, that you would pay attention. But the sad thing is, is that it's not natural for us in our fallen state. If you turn to John chapter 3, verse 19, we see there a horrible indictment of sinful man, man outside of Christ. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. For fallen man, for sinful man, for rebellious sinners, the light is a scary thing because it exposes sin. It exposes evil. And so what is the reaction of fallen man, of sinful man? Man says, there is no light. There is no way out. There is no full light of day. All there is is life as we know it. So embrace it. Embrace the darkness. Embrace the hurt. Embrace the world the way it is. There's nothing better to be hoped for or expected. Fallen man, man outside of Christ, loves to criticize the scripture and say, it's an old woman's, it's a fairy tale, an old wives tale. All this stuff about salvation and about a new heavens and a new earth and about cleansing and forgiveness and light and life. These are just metaphors. These are just nice stories to comfort people so that they can get through their daily lives. You don't need it, really. You don't need all this Jesus stuff. You just need to live a good life, don't judge other people, enjoy yourself as much as you can, and then you die, and then it's all over. Well, it's bad enough to see rebellious sinners reject the gospel, but there's something even worse, and that is to see people who ostensibly are Christians doing the same thing. We see throughout history people using the language of Christianity to deny it. We see people saying, you know what, it's not worth it to follow the scripture. It hurts too much. It's too inconvenient. It's too costly. You can't do what you want. And you're seen as a killjoy. You're seen as hateful and judgmental and discriminatory against other people's lifestyles. And you don't fit in. You're not accepted in the world. And plus, in the end, every culture has its helpful myths and ancient stories that help people get through their day. And Scripture is just one more collection of helpful stories and myths 
Every culture has a human attempt to to explain origins and the complicated world in which they live. And the Bible has no more authority than those other ancient writings. Plus, the Bible is written by so many different people in so many different times, and it just represents their own limited understanding and opinions. There were people on Peter's day that said the same thing. And that's, he, ref, he, he writes about them, he interacts with them in the second letter. There were people in Peter's day who said, you know what, it's not worth it to follow Jesus. It's not worth it to follow the light of the gospel. It hurts too much because people that were following Jesus were being persecuted. They were being put in prison. They were losing everything they had. Some of them were being killed. And so these people said, you know what, forget it. It's not doing me any good. And plus, where's all this promised glory anyway? Where where is this new heavens and this new earth? Things just keep on going the same way every day, every week, every month, every year. It's the same thing. Darkness is all there is. Well, Peter writes in this situation to people who have had their eyes opened and their hearts changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, listen, believers, this is the way things are. Here is darkness, and here is corruption, and here is sin, and here is death. And over here is light, and life, and glory. Now by nature, believers, you were stuck and immersed in this corruption, sin, and death. But God has done something in Jesus Christ. And God has come into your life. And God has changed your heart. And God is bringing you from here to there. He's bringing you from being immersed in corruption to being immersed in the glory of the presence of God. And that's not just a nice fairy tale or an old story to comfort people and get them through their day. It's not some metaphor or comforting myth, but it is the very truth of God. This is what he says in the first part of the chapter, and that brings us to our text. He says, you know why? You know why it's the truth of God? Because We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw him with our own eyes. We saw the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We saw his face and his clothes shining with heavenly glory and majesty. Not the way Moses' face shined there on the Mount Sinai, a reflected glory, but we saw Jesus shining with his own glory. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, God showed us the one who is the very radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And as if if that was not enough, we heard the voice from heaven. We heard God the Father declaring that Jesus was no ordinary human, but the very Son of God. And on that holy mountain, for a few Glorious moments, we saw the one of whom all the Old Testament prophecies were speaking. 
We saw the one whom all the Old Testament prophecies were proclaiming. We saw Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior, the Messiah. After his resurrection, Luke chapter 24, Jesus reminded the disciples, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which are the three main parts of the Old Testament, so it's a way of talking about all the Old Testament scripture. He says, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all speak about me. And what they all spoke about, Peter and the others on the Mount of Transfiguration saw in all its glory. So Peter's telling his audience, the people that are reading his letter, it's not just wishful thinking, it's not just comforting myths, but it's truth. We have, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We saw it. We heard it. We were there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory in his perfect life in his spirit-filled teaching, in his sovereign control of the wind and the storm, in his creative power to make food out of basically nothing, his perfect love, his powerful victory over sin and death, his glorious resurrection and ascension, we saw it all. And everything the word of God proclaimed about the Messiah through the prophets We saw it happening. We saw it confirmed. We saw that it's truth. And we know that all the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a nice story. He's not just some fable that humans made up to help them deal with life in this broken world. But he is truth. He is more real than reality in itself. And because the prophetic word, because the Bible, because the scripture is about Christ, therefore it is sure and certain and true. And it's a good idea to pay attention to it. Children, you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I spoke about being stuck under the mountain in in tunnels and caverns where it's totally dark and and you see a light. What are you going to do? You're going to go towards that light. And that's what the scripture is. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. And you have to be a fool to ignore it. You have to be a fool not to pay very close attention to it. Notice what the apostle says in verse 19. He says, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until. So there is a time when we won't have to pay so much attention to the word. Until when? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Think about it. Deep inside the mountain in the tunnels and the pitch black, a lamp is blazing with light. 
And so you follow it left and right and up and down. And finally you come towards the, the opening which leads to the outside. And when you come into the full sun, the blazing glory of the midday sun. And the entire world is just blazing with light. Then suddenly that lamp doesn't look so bright anymore, does it? And it's really not so necessary anymore, is it? That's the way it is with the scripture. As we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we await that glorious day when he will make all things new, as we await that day when he will tell the sun and the moon, I no longer lead you because the Lamb of God and God the Father will be the light in the new creation. As we wait for that day, this is how we get to see Jesus. This is how we get to know him. The lamp, the light of the gospel. And so we pay attention to it. But the day will come when our faith will be made sight. The day will come when we will look upon the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep looking at your Bible? No, you're going to say, I can see the Lord Jesus. I'm going to look at him. The word incarnate. The word made flesh. That day comes. The full light of day comes. You don't need the lamp anymore. Because we will be bathed in the glory of God. And we will know the glory of Christ. The morning star rising in our hearts. In a way never experienced before. We will be surrounded with the glory and light of God. And it will fill us in a way unimaginable. But we're not there yet, are we? We haven't arrived yet. We're still in this dark and broken and sinful and fallen world under the curse. And so we need to pay attention. We will do well to pay attention. Why? Why should we pay attention to the Bible, to the Word of God? Because it's not nice stories made up by different people over different centuries. It is the Word of God. It is the only way out of the darkness. Your word, says the Bible, your word is a lamp to my feet. It is a light to my path. The word of God is the only way out of a network and, and, and morass of lies. The Bible says your word is truth. Because this Glorious word of God, this glorious spirit-filled word of Christ is our only hope. It's the only way we get to know him. It's the only way we get to know the way out, the way back to God. Your enemy does everything he can to tear it away from you, to distract your attention, to move your focus to other things. Your enemy. Yes, you have an enemy. You have an enemy who hates you and hates the one who you serve. You have an enemy who desires your death forever. And if you have an enemy like that, you want to be paying attention to the things that he does and the strategies that he uses. We go way back to the beginning of time. We see how he works. 
There is Adam, there is Eve in the garden. What does the enemy do? He tries to distract their attention on the word of God. He says, has God really said? Sure about that? Is that really what God's saying? Don't you think you should reinterpret what God's saying to be a little bit more in line with what you want? He's been doing that, brothers and sisters, for thousands of years. He gets away with it. We fall for it time and time and time again. Every time you sin, you fall for that line. You're like, oh yeah, true. God says this, but, but I want that. So I'm just going to fiddle with the word a little bit. Either ignore it or twist it or adapt it a little bit to excuse my sin and disobedience. It takes all kinds of forms, but it's always the same thing. The devil wants to take away our confidence, our trust in the word of God. A few days ago, I was speaking with a sister in Christ, and she had read this article about homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And this article just took Christians to task and said, who do you think you are to get in the way of other people's happiness? Who do you think? Are you the owner? Do you have a corner in the truth? Why do you care if other people are just happy the way they want to be happy, if other people want to love the way they want to love? And then this article, which was written by someone who purported to be a Christian, this article said, you know what? This is what the Bible teaches us, to love people, to be kind to people, not to mind other people's business. And this sister, she said to me, how do we answer this guy? Because he kind of seems to have a point. So I went and read the article. And you will find this invariably, brothers and sisters. If you look carefully at the presuppositions underneath these kinds of things, you will see that they all share one thing, and that is they despise the word of God. They do not receive the holy word of God as the word of God. And this article had it right in there. At a key moment, in a very sneaky way, the author said, you know what? Yes, I know that Paul, for instance, mentions homosexuality as a sin which will lead people to eternal judgment. But that's just Paul. He was limited by his time and by the thinking of his time, and that was just his opinion. The Bible is just a collection of books and writings from lots of different people, and some of their opinions are good, and some of them are not so good, and some of them have stood the test of time, and others don't really work so much in our modern, sophisticated, cool times. So pay attention to that. When people come seeing things, when people come writing things, even within Christianity, within Christendom, on the blogs, look for the underlying presuppositions. 
Does this author who is making these claims, does he, does she submit to the word of God as the word of God? If not, you probably should trash that article or that book. You know, there are other ways that the devil distracts us and diverts our attention from the word. And one other way, for instance, is just sheer lack of discipline. Sheer laziness. You ever had that? You get so caught up in your daily tasks, you've got all these things to do, and you go through the entire day, and suddenly you look back and think, well, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I prayed at lunch, and I didn't open the Word today, because I, I got out of bed and I hit the ground running, and I went rushing off to my first appointment, and wow, I didn't really think about God much today, did I? You know, brothers and sisters, paying attention to the Word of God as a lamp shining in a dark place requires hard work and discipline. The devil is happy when we walk like Pilgrim in Vanity Fair, like Pilgrim didn't do, when we look at all the different things that the world has to offer and we we just get bedazzled by them. And we forget the path. We forget the lamp. We forget to pay attention. You know, if your Bible is gathering dust on your shelf, if you do not have a disciplined practice of reading the Scripture personally, together with your wife and together with your family, then you better be careful. It's a very dangerous thing to do. You know, often the elders come and visit someone who has fallen into sin, who's kind of straying from the path. And invariably, in every situation where there is sin and hardening in sin, together with that, is a despising of the word of God and of the sacraments. And as the elders and the pastors, as they visit sinners who have just dug a hole for themselves, who have gone off the path, who have just crashed and burned because of their sins and their bad choices, and then you ask them, are you reading the scripture? Are you spending time in the word? They're like, no, I, I, I don't have time. You just think to yourself, why don't you just turn on the light? If, you, if you're driving far out in the country at night on a cloudy, moonless night, and there are no other cars and there are no street lamps, would you put your headlights on? Would you turn your headlights on? I think you would. Because if you don't drive with your headlights on, you're going to crash. And how many believers are driving around with their headlights off? Because the Bible's closed. Because if we do read it, we read like one or two verses in a rush, and then we rush out of the door. And the apostle says, pay attention. You do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Because Scripture is not man's thoughts or ideas. Scripture 
is the record of the prophets and apostles saying, this is what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord. Scripture is the Holy Spirit of God speaking. Scripture is the Holy Spirit of Christ testifying about Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Scripture is about Christ who is the way out of sin and the way back to God. Scripture is about Christ who is the truth in a world full of lies. Scripture is about Christ who is life in a world of death. And Scripture, as the apostle says here in the last verses of our text, Scripture is not what man think. Scripture is not the opinion or the will of man. It's not the interpretation of man. It's not the thoughts and imaginations of man's heart. But Scripture is men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, You'll see an example of that. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Now in Hebrews chapter 3, the apostle will quote a psalm. He's quoting Psalm 95. And This is how he introduces it, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Now, we all know that the psalm was written by a person. It was written by the psalmist. And yet the Bible says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then proceeds to cite and quote this psalm written by a human being. And that's how the Bible deals with inspired writings. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's not just the words of people, but it's God speaking through human instruments. And because the word of God is God speaking, because it's the word of God itself, we do well to pay attention. And together with the psalmist in Psalm 25, we say, Lord, make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. We want to hear God speak to us. We want to hear what God says. We want to hear God's will. We want to learn of God's decrees. And that's why we're just not interested in the opinions of anybody, really. We don't want the opinions of some blogger or some author. We don't want the opinions of some elder or deacon or some preacher. We don't get out of bed on Sunday morning to go hear some guy's opinions. There are a lot of better things we could be doing with our time. We want to hear God speaking to us from the Word, in the Word. And so children, pay attention. And if you ever hear from this pulpit something that God didn't say, you stand up and you say, no, we don't want to hear it. Just tell us what 
God has to say. The Apostle calls us to pay attention to the glorious, spirit-filled word of Christ. Through the word, he's leading us out of the darkness into the light. And so we want to know what the word has to say. As it shines on the path and shows us the way to go, it shows us how to make decisions about gender, about what a man is and what a woman is, about what a family is, about what a marriage is, about how sexuality works about how husbands and wives ought to treat each other, about our attitude towards work and how we live and for whom we live. And what the Bible says about the sacred rhythm of work and rest and keeping the Lord's day holy. And about what the Bible says about the role of men and women in in church and family and society. We want to know what God says. And then we want to follow that light, come what may Cost it what it may cost. Now the world and the worldly church, they mock such a humble attitude. You stupid, backwards Neanderthals who believe in things written thousands of years ago. I'm sure you've seen it in the comment section on some of the websites where the atheists say, There you go again, you Christian, with your imaginary friend in the sky. How can you be so dumb to follow some book written by people thousands of years ago? Well, let them mock. They mocked our Lord Jesus, too. They mocked his holy apostles. And there are countless hands reaching out of the darkness. And and they use everything from seduction to peer pressure to ridicule to violence and to the power of the state in order to attempt to turn our eyes and divert our attention from the light of the word and to convince us to make ourselves comfortable with them in the darkness. We're going to be singing Psalm 43. The psalmist, he says, Lord, here I am. I'm in this cruel, ungodly, and crooked generation that loves deceit and treachery. I'm in this world full of darkness and corruption. Save me. Set me free. You're my stronghold. See how they all surround me and and scoff and laugh at me. And then he says in stanza three, which we're going to sing now, he says, send forth, O God of my salvation, your light and your truth to be my guide, and lead me to my destination, your holy hill and habitation, where I with you will safely hide in shelter you provide. That was the prayer of the psalmist way before the Lord Jesus Christ came. And in Jesus Christ, God has answered that prayer. He has sent. He is sending. And he will continue to send his light, and his truth to be our guide and to bring us back home to be with the Father. And as we walk through this dark and broken and sinful world, we will do well to pay attention. Amen.